Today I want to talk about something that I think is, is critical. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I actually thought I was going to be preaching about this in September. And I always just try and pray about what I'm to share. You know, that's how I want to do it. Uh, and, and so I, I had assumed I, I'd preach this. And then the Lord said, not yet. And so I was just kind of waiting on the Lord uh, as to when to preach this. And turned out it would be this week. And so uh, I've been kind of anticipating this for a while. And, and it's a subject that I, I uh, uh, think is just critical for us all. And so I hope that... Uh, uh, for what it's worth, that you can take from what you will from this and, and uh, that the Lord will use it uh, for his glory. And so what I want to talk about today, and I've talked about this in, in, in uh, a brief, briefly in other uh, contexts, but is specifically focusing on humility. Kim, would you put the first slide up? I want to give you a, a, a quote it looks like it's being cut off a little bit. A quote that I don't remember when I heard this the first time. I think it was around five years ago. How many of you heard of Jason Upton? Okay, most of us. He's an amazing musician and a prophetic musician and actually quite an amazing preacher. If you haven't heard him, he's one of my favorites, to be honest. And this, I'll just read the quote with an emphasis on what I have in yellow. And I want you to think about this. So right now, in this day and age... The best discernment that you can ever use is to hang out with those who are followers of Jesus that are humble and broken. Because Jesus dealt with people not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of humble or proud. So I want to repeat the thing, that what I have highlighted in yellow. Jesus dealt with people not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of humble or proud. Now, I remember the first time I heard Jason Upton say this, it was one of those statements that it kind of like, oh my goodness, like, I was like, that sounds true to me, but it, but it, but it, it made me have to sort of sit, sit back and, and think about it, because I was like, is that true? And let, let me, let me, let me say this. I think we, when I say we, most of us think in terms of right and wrong, don't we? And it almost sounds heretical <laughs> to say that Jesus was not concerned about whether we were right or wrong, but whether we were proud or humble. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized how true it is. Now, I'm not saying that uh, it's not important to have right beliefs, but what I'm saying is, and I'm still working this out to be sure. I, I don't have it all figured out. But what I am saying is, if you look at the life of Jesus, you just read the Gospels, this is completely true. I, I, I mean, you just look at it, who he hung out with, how he dealt with people. The people he hung out with were the humble, like, come on now, fishermen from Galilee. I mean, they were newfies, right, for all intents and purposes, weren't they? <laughs> Right? I mean, they didn't have a theological degree of any sorts, I'm guessing. In fact, I don't think any of his disciples uh, uh, were the theologians of the day. The people he had the most trouble with were the people who were right. Right? The ones who studied the Bible their whole entire lives. And when Jesus came, the word himself manifest came flesh. They rejected him. And, and I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, and I talked about the religious spirit. He, they're the only people Jesus ever really got angry with. 
because they resisted him so much. And he, and he would rebuke them over and over. You know what? The harlots, right? The publicans, all these people who you consider sinners are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. Self-righteous Pharisees. <laughs> and that's the problem, I think, with trying to seek after being right is if we do it, if we're not careful, we will become self-righteous. We're not seeking to be right. We're seeking the truth. And, the, and by the way, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, the truth is a person. It is not a doctrine. It is not a set of propositions that we give mental assent to. The truth is a person and his name is Jesus. Right? And so this, I think, could trip us up if we're so concerned about being right or wrong. I, I would argue that this, maybe, is one of the most destructive things that have been uh, part of the church universal for the last 500 years. Thank God for the Protestant Reformation now. Okay? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, there was a lot of error, and we needed truth to be spoken, especially that we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not by works. And those are essential truths that we all needed to sort of recalibrate. But ever since then, it all became about right and wrong, for the most part. So you look at most denominations, it's all around a, 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 a truth. And if you don't agree with me, you're not part of our club. If you don't believe this certain truth, then, then you, you, you're not part of, you can't even become a member in our church. It became so much about right and wrong that if, if you don't agree with me, then you're in error and you're not part of the faith. Right? Now, this might sound heretical potentially. I don't know. But I think the, the, one of the heresies we should be most concerned about is the heresy against John 17. That we would be one, as Jesus and the Father were one. That was Jesus' last prayer. Unity, right? And all of these dissensions that have happened in schisms, works of the flesh, if you look at Galatians 5, 19 and 20, he, he, Jesus considers schisms and dissensions and factions works of the flesh. He has them listed with sexual immorality and drunkenness and witchcraft. And we just consider it normal. It's not normal. It isn't. It's, it's actually, Jesus says, if you continue in this, those who continue in these things, he lists about 22 works of the flesh, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to, with everything I say, I want to give balance because I don't think denominations are wrong necessarily. In fact, I, I actually think that um, God has a purpose for them. It, just like the 12 tribes of Israel had different prophetic destinies, you know, uh, so is it that we're going to naturally be attracted to certain movements like, like us. We're attracted to the Keshe fire for different reasons because of the prophetic calling that God has on us. But nonetheless, we're still part of the body of Christ. And so we need to just be, to consider this, that God isn't so concerned about right and wrong. Okay, he's, he's more concerned about the condition of our heart. Now, when I heard Jason Upton say this, I, I, there, there was, a, there was a, a season in my life, I suppose, when I, it was this, and, and in fact, I'm going to read, I wasn't sure whether to do this, but I really feel like I was, I was supposed to when it, before the service, so I'm going to. How many of you have read The Final Quest? few of you. Okay. Okay. I'm glad then. 
I highly, and this is a personal preference, so you don't have to, but I highly recommend this book. In fact, The Final Quest, there's three books, is written by Rick Joyner in the 90s, 1996, all came out of a prophetic, multiple of prophetic encounters that he had, and I'm talking high-level prophetic encounters, like he would go to like the third heavens and that sort of thing, and you know, it, it was the kind of thing where he would, he, he has a, a cabin in Moravian Falls and he'd be in a trance having these intense encounters and he'd snap out of it and drive back to Charlotte, North Carolina, work for a week, go back to the cabin, and as soon as he'd sit down in his chair, he would go right back in the trance and he would start off in the prophetic encounter where he left off the week before. Like, it was really, really, like, high-level intense encounters and in my in pref, pref, personal uh, preference, my favorite book, other than the Bible of all time. I, I, uh, now, there's three books that came out of this encounter, The Final Quest, The Call, and The Torch and the Sword. And I've read them multiple times because I love it so much because the Lord speaks to me so much to them. Now, there's a lot of prophetic symbolism in them. And I'm telling you this for a reason because I'm going to read just a few pages from this. To, and I, I want to just give you a context because if I read this, you're going to be like, what's he talking about? So he, in the midst of this prophetic encounter... I'm going to try and be brief, and I haven't read this for a while, so I'm going to try and be accurate as well. There, there is a whole, it, it's talking about the end time battle. And there's a whole bunch of demonic uh, armies that are, are, are uh, attacking the church. And each army is representing some demonic deception. And, and so anyway, there's this whole thing where he's going up the mountain of the Lord... And each level of the mountain represents a biblical truth. So the foundation salvation. And then there's sanctification. And then there's praise and thanksgiving. And then there's like Galatians 2.20. And, he, and there's, there's this whole like story about him going up the mountain. And the top of the mountain is the Father's unconditional love. So he's in the midst of this encounter on the top of the mountain. And there's all of these Christians just encountering the Lord. And it's amazing. Like the, the tree of life is there in the midst. And Jesus himself appears. And they're worshiping together in unity. And there's angels. And he just wanted to be there forever. The Father's unconditional love. And then an angel that was with him, who's the personification of wisdom, is like, you cannot, you need to go back in the battle. And Rick didn't want to leave, of course. But anyway, he's like, now I'm going to teach you some things going down the mountain. And you're going to learn a lot going, just as much going down as you did going up. So Rick goes down the mountain. Okay, this is after an intense, like, epic encounter with the Lord's, the Father's unconditional love. And he's down at the bottom of the mountain. Okay, so that's just a little bit of context. I'm going to just read, uh, if you'd bear with me, a couple of pages because th when I first read this, actually the first couple, the, lo the Lord really, really, really spoke to me. And this will give a really good, I think, uh, premise from what I want to talk about today. Okay, so this is him in this encounter now. So, I, I then looked out over the carnage below and slowly, remember he's in the midst of the battle, retreating a demonic army. Behind me, more of the glorious warriors were constantly talking, or taking their places rather on the mountain. I knew that we were now strong enough to attack and destroy what was left of this uh, enemy horde. Not yet, said Wisdom, the angel. Look over there. I looked in the direction in which he was pointing, but I had to shield my eyes from the glory emanating from my own armor to see anything. So he, because he was in the Father's presence, he, he had a suit of armor on, the armor of God, and it was so bright, right from the glory of the Lord that he was just in, he couldn't see. So then I caught a glimpse of some movement in a small valley. I could not make out 
what I was seeing because the glory shining from my armor made it difficult to see into the darkness. I asked Wisdom if there was something that I could cover my armor with so I could see it. He then gave me a very plain mantle to put on. What is this, I inquired, a little insulted by its drabness. Humility, uh, said Wisdom. You will not be able to see very well without it. So reluctantly, I put it on, and I immediately saw many things I could not see before. I looked toward the valley and the movement I had seen. To my astonishment, there was an entire division of the enemy horde that was waiting to ambush anyone who'd ventured from the mountain. What army is that, I asked, and how did they escape the battle intact? That is pride, explained Wisdom. That's the hardest enemy to see after you've been in the glory. Those who refuse to put on this cloak will suffer much at the hands of that most devious enemy, the cloak of humility. As I looked back at the mountain, I saw many of the glorious warriors. Now, these are the other Christians who are in the, who are in the glory of the Lord, going back into the battle. So, uh, so okay, it's glorious warriors crossing the plain to attack the remnant of the enemy horde. None of them were wearing the cloaks of humility, and they had not seen the enemy that was ready to attack them from their rear. I started to run out to stop them, but wisdom restrained me. You cannot stop this, he said. Only the soldiers who wear this cloak will recognize your authority, the cloak of humility. Come with me. There's something else that I must show you before you can help lead the great battle that's to come. I'm going to fast forward a couple pages. I was pondering, he, he had this other experience in the, anyway. I was pondering how I was learning as much by descending the mountain as I had been climbing it. When the noise from the battlefield drew my attention... By now, there were thousands of mighty warriors who had crossed the plain to attack the remnant of the enemy horde. The enemy was fleeing in all directions except for the one division, pride. Completely undetected, it had marched right up to the rear of the advancing warriors and was to release a hail of arrows. I then noticed that the mighty warriors had no armor on their backsides. They were totally exposed and vulnerable to what was about to hit them. Wisdom remarked, you have taught that there was no armor for the backside, which meant that you were vulnerable if you ran from the enemy. However, you never saw how advancing in pride also made you vulnerable. He's talking about the armor of God, right? If you think about it, there's no army on, or armor on your backside. So, I, I could only nod in acknowledgement, for it was too late to do anything. It was almost unbearable to watch, but wisdom said that I must. I knew that the kingdom of God was about to suffer a major defeat. Though I had felt sorrow before, I'd never felt this kind of sorrow. To my amazement, when the arrows of pride struck the warriors, they didn't even notice. However, the enemy kept shooting. The warriors were bleeding and getting weaker fast, but they wouldn't acknowledge it. Soon they were too weak to hold up their shields and swords. They cast them down, declaring that they no longer needed them. Then they started taking off their armor, saying it was not needed anymore either. Another enemy division appeared and moved up swiftly. It was called Strong Delusion. Its members released a hail of arrows. They all seemed to hit their mark. It only took a few of the demons of delusion, who were all small and seemingly weak, to lead away this once great army of glorious warriors. They were taken to various prison camps, each named after a different doctrine of demons. I was astounded how this great army of the righteous had been so easily defeated, and they still didn't even know what hit them. I blurted out, how could those who are so strong, who have been all the way to the top of the mountain, who have seen the Lord as they have, be so vulnerable? Pride is the hardest enemy to see, and it always sneaks up behind you, wisdom lamented. In some ways, those who have been to the greatest heights are in the greatest danger of falling. You must always remember that in this life, you can fall at any time from any level. 
Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall, I replied. How awesome this scripture seems to me now. When you think you're the least vulnerable to falling is in fact when you're the most vulnerable. Most men fall immediately after a great victory, wisdom lamented. How can we keep this battle uh, from being attacked like this? Or how can we keep from being attacked like this, rather? I asked. Stay close to me, wisdom. Inquire of the Lord before making major decisions. And keep that mantle on. The mantle of humility. Then the enemy will not be able to easily blindside you as he did them. I looked at my mantle. It looked so plain and insignificant. I felt that it made me look more like a homeless person than a warrior. Wisdom responded as if I had been speaking out loud. The Lord is closer to the homeless than to kings. You only have to true strength to the, the degree that you walk in the grace of God. And he gives grace to the humble. No evil weapon can penetrate this mantle because nothing can overpower his grace. As long as you wear this mantle, you're safe from this kind of attack. I then started to look up to see how many warriors were still in the mountain. I was shocked to see how few there were. I noticed, however, that they all had on the same mantle of humility, the ones that were left over. How did this happen, I inquired. When they saw the battle you just witnessed, they all came to me for help, and I gave them their mantles, wisdom replied. But I thought you were with me the whole time. I am with... All who go to do the will of my father, wisdom answered. You're the Lord, I cried. Yes, he answered. I told you that I would never leave you or forsake you. I'm with all my warriors, just I am with you. I'll, never, or I'll be to you whatever you need to accomplish my will, and, you have, uh, and you'd have needed wisdom. He, then he vanished. Just a couple more here of us. I was left standing in the midst of the great company of angels who were ministering to the wounded on the level of salvation. As I began to walk past these angels, they bowed to one knee and showed me great respect. I finally asked one of them why they did this, as even the smallest was much more powerful than I was. Because of the mantle, he replied. That's the highest rank in the kingdom. This is just a plain mantle, I protested. No, the angel protested. You are clothed in the grace of God. There's no greater power than that. But there are thousands of us all wearing the same mantle. How could it represent rank, I asked. You're the dreaded champions, the sons and daughters of the king, who he wore the same mantle when he walked on this earth. As long as you are clothed in that, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can stand before you. Everyone in heaven and hell recognizes that mantle. We were indeed his servants, but he abides in you, and you are clothed in his grace. Somehow I knew that if I'd not been wearing the mantle... And my glorious armor had been exposed, the angel's statements and behavior toward me would have fed my pride. It was simply impossible to feel prideful or arrogant while wearing such a drab, plain cloak. However, my confidence in the mantle was growing fast. So I remember what, uh, if you read that book and the rest of it, that mantle of humility is a critical thing throughout the entire book. And there's so much revelation that goes along with that. But I just wanted to read this to you because there's, there's a lot of revelation in what we just uh, uh, read in that book, right? So in order to, to withstand pride, now I think this is per pertinent to us in particular, because if you think of our movement, uh, uh, Catch the Fire, the revival, a lot of it had to do with the unconditional love of the Father, right? And that was the highest peak of the mountain. Now if we're not careful, our encounters with the Lord can feed our pride and then we can get cut off from the grace of God because then pride comes from the backside and hits you. And then you can get into strong delusions, right, of the enemy. And the only way to prevent that is to wear the cloak of humility. And, and he was saying that the cloak of humility 
The reason it's so powerful is because you're clothed with the grace of God. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's humility, as I mentioned, but humility and pride. And, and because this is such a critical message, because humility is such a critical th- virtue, if you will, that we need as Christians, that I want to emphasize this and I want to trumpet this. Because I've alluded to this previously, but I think, like I said, I, the Lord wanted me to deliver a message on this. And, and, and it was reading this book and, li- and hearing that, like a quote from Jason Upton, where I was like, what does humility even mean? Because, like, the way my brain, I, I want a conceptual definition. I want to know, this is what humility is, so I can do that, and I could not find that in the Bible. I really could. I was like, what is humility? It just seems like so many different things, and everyone has their own opinions of what humility is. But if you read the entire, especially New Testament, humility is woven throughout. You just read Matthew, right off the bat. You look Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off by saying, the, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are various facets of what humility looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who thirst and, and, and hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. All these things are various facets of humility. And then he goes on and contrasts what pride versus humility looks like. If you want to be humble, go in the secret place and pray. Don't do it in front of people like the Pharisees do, the hypocrites, so that they can see by, be seen by others so that it feeds their pride and their self-righteousness. If you're going to fast, do it in secret. Don't, don't put ashes on yourself so everyone knows you're fasting. Because if you do that, then you've received your reward, which is recognition from others. But if you do it in secret, so your father who's in secret sees what you're doing, then you'll be rewarded. It's all about the heart. If you're going to give, don't give in front of others and to the poor and and trumpet it so that everyone knows that you're giving. Instead, don't let your left hand know what your right's doing. Give to the poor in secret and your Father in heaven's going to reward you. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about pride and humility. You look throughout all the Gospels, it's all about humility. And how we walk that out. You read the New Testament epistles. Over and over and over again, clothe yourself in, with humility. And the interesting thing about humility, it's always an imperative that we humble ourselves. It's something we have to do. It's actually a choice we have to make. Over and over and over again, Jesus said, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's something we have to do. In the epistles, clothe yourself with humility. It never says, ask God to humble you. It says, you humble yourself. And so it's actually a decision. It's something we have to do personally. If you'd go two slides, Kim. Yeah. So I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I want to mention this again, because this is a critical scripture, especially in the topic today. It's, it's, it's quoted twice in the New Testament, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I already said this, but Jesus didn't base his relationship to people off of whether they were right or wrong. He hung out with the humble. He resisted the proud. Period. Because the disciples didn't have perfect theology. Notice this doesn't say God resists the ignorant and he gives grace to the seminary professors. No way. He does not say that, right? The people who think they have it all together, they're the ones who, are the, who God probably resists. It's the ones who are humble enough to receive him. 
Because he's a person, right? So what does humility look like? That's the million dollar question that I had. How can we live humble? Because God, if you, if you are attracted to the humble, then I want to be humble. And, and, and I want to, this is important for us as a congregation because as we're going to see, whenever, most of the time when, especially in the epistles, they talk about humility, it's in the context of community. That's where you walk it out, Right? So I think for as a congregation, if we want to attract the presence of the Lord, if we want to attract the Holy Spirit, that we, it's critical that we figure this out and that we walk it out so that he'll come. Because he resists the proud. If we become prideful, because we're part of Catch the Fire, for instance, because God used us in a significant way. When I say us, I'm talking about the movement to impact the world. You, how many of you know that can cause pride if we're not careful and then God will resist us and he'll quit showing up? Like, we don't want to even go there. We don't even want to get close to that, right? We want to stay humble. So, uh, Kim, I'll just, yeah, I'll move to the next slide. I made the point that Jesus, and I won't, uh, for time's sake, spend time on this, is, is the truth, Jesus says, in, and I'll just allude to this. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the truth. John 16, 12, 13, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you in all truth. It's not about whether we figure it out. He's the one who enables us to figure it out. He's the one who guides us and leads us into all truth. It's up to the Holy Spirit. Our job is to humble ourselves. And if we do... Then we'll be led into all truth. We're not going to get it by seeking out the scriptures on our own without his grace. Which is made clear in John 5, 39 to 40. You study this, this is Jesus saying this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus talking about, I'm the truth. You're not going to find truth by seeking out the scriptures apart from it, unless you're looking at them to get closer to me. So what does humility look like? Jesus. (laughs) He's the right answer. Jesus. It was humility personified. So the scripture I want to talk about from Philippians 2, 1 to 11, this is the ultimate scripture on humility, talking about Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice the first portion, and sorry, the the text is kind of uh, uh, small to fit it all on, is about how we treat each other in the context of community. So I'll just read it. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mine. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. Okay? So this is how we're supposed to live. This is an amazing scripture about Jesus. This is how in, in community we're supposed to walk this out. 
who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Remember I said, humility is a choice. You'll notice over and over again, humble yourself. It's something you have to do. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, right? Those who humble themselves, God will exalt. To the highest place and gave him the same, or the name rather, that's above every name. And that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and God of the Father. Now, I want to say this about an encounter Stacey Campbell had with the Pope. Okay, so back about seven years ago, eight years ago, in 2007, this was before he was the Pope. He was the Cardinal, Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Now, how many of you were at the conference this summer with a, a unity conference with the Catholic Charismatic? I know Neil was there. Matteo, do you remember Matteo was there? Okay. So he's really involved with the Catholic Charismatics. And he, so back then, he's, he's from South America, I believe. And Stacy got to know him. It's a long story. Long story short, she was at this event, and they were praying, I think, for unity. And the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, who she had no idea who was, she's with Mateo, and he didn't speak English very well, got up and quoted Philippians chapter 2. Now, remember, he's just a cardinal at the time. The, the, very, the, the very scripture, that's all he did. He didn't pray or anything, just quoted this and read it. The very scripture I just read to you. And Stacy Campbell said as he was reading it, she had one of the most dramatic encounters of her life. It was like the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like the heavens opened and there was light and the Lord audibly spoke to her. And he said something like this. This isn't just a scripture to this man. This is his whole life. This is just, this isn't just words on a page. This is his whole life. So Stacy goes to Mateo, hey, can I meet him, right? Can he pray for me? And Mateo didn't understand English very well. He he thought she was saying, asking if she can pray for him. So after the meeting, he introduces him to her and says, hey, to the cardinal, she wants to pray for you. And Stacy's like, oh my goodness, no, I was hoping for prayer, but okay. Holy Spirit comes on her. She starts shaking and praying for him. And, and the Lord started speaking to her this scripture. And she said, just as at the bottom there, therefore God exalted the highest place. She said, just, this isn't just words on a page to you. This is your entire life. And as a result, God's going to exalt you because of your humility to the highest position in the Catholic church. And you're going to be the next Pope. And he was blown away. He's like, what? He had his eyes closed. He's like, what? Right? No one from South America has been Pope before. And you know, she said for that to happen, the, the Pope at the time had to, is the first Pope in 600 years that stepped down. Because there's a, there's a, I don't understand this, but there's a timing involved with the age you have to be. She said for that to come to pass, that prophetic word, he had to step down, which he did. It was the first time in 600 years. And sure enough, this guy became the Pope. Pope Francis. That, God put him in that position because of his humility. Not a, concerned about right and wrong. Because I'm sure there's a lot of us who would say we don't agree with some of those doctrines that he believes in. 
it doesn't seem to matter too much to God, does it? Ask God about it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're wrong to judge somebody because they believe something different than us. I don't know. God is more concerned about the humility of the heart. You know, when I was, when I was uh, a few, quite a few years ago, how many of you have read anything about the Catholic mystics? There are fathers in the I don't care which, there are their fathers in the faith. Now, for, for up until the 1500s, they were the church. What blew my mind is some of these people I read about were walking in miracles and visions and encounters beyond what I've ever, ever, ever heard of, even now. And I couldn't help but wonder, like, they would have visions from the time, some of them, like Catherine of Siena, from the time they were young, and, and Jesus Christ would appear to her. And, and I go, Lord, why, when, you're appear, when you appeared to her, why didn't you say you're wrong about <laughs> some of these false doctrines they're believing in, these amazing people of God, you know? And, you know, you read some of their lives, and it was like, it was just clear, like, anyway, it's not biblical, <laughs> So I remember asking somebody once who teach, taught a class on this. I won't name who. And I, I was like, because she had encounters with the Lord. And I was like, I can't figure this out. There's these amazing people throughout history, prophetic people who are clearly in error. And they had encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Why didn't he correct them and say, hey, your doctrine's wrong or whatever? Like, why, why not? He could have just said, hey, by the way, this you're doing is not right. But he didn't. And you know what she said to me, and, and you can pray about this. I, she said, you know, to be honest and keep this between us, really, or whatever, I don't think God cares as much as we do. I just don't think he cares as much as we do about some of these things. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I would stand on, there's a middle ground. I, there's some things that are critical you got to believe. That is absolutely clear in Scripture. I'm just saying some of these secondary things that have created tons of division and church splits and new denominations because you don't agree with me on the color of the carpet or whatever. These things that don't matter. I think that we should examine ourselves and be like, hey, you know, maybe these secondary things, you know, that created so many issues aren't really that important to God. Maybe, maybe humility is what really matters. And I'm going to show you that that's really what matters. That's really what matters. So, uh, can we just skip two slides? <laughs> Got to s- Thank you. Matthew eleven twenty. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, Matthew eleven twenty five to thirty. We're talking about Jesus, right? What does humility look like? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. The first part of it I'm not gonna emphasize now, but I'm gonna emphasize later because it's amazing. In the next slide, I'm gonna emphasize it. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. Those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. This is how Jesus describes himself. I don't know, but I was trying to think of this. I think this is the only scripture where Jesus uses, describes himself in terms of like traits or attributes. The only time we see Jesus saying, this is what I'm like, I'm humble. 
so if that's what Jesus, if that was his, this is who I am. This is if, you know, in a personality test, I'm humble, right? And gentle and humble. And you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. If we want to be like Jesus, this is how we should be able to describe ourselves. That we're, that, right? We, we have humility and we're gentle. And so people, we're a safe place for people to come to us. So the next slide, now I'm going to emphasize the first part, but from the Gospel of Luke. So this is talking about his disciples. They just went out, were commissioned by the Lord. The 72 went, cast out a bunch of demons, came back, they were excited. The 72 returned in joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now get this. this is, <laughs> at this time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you. And then the scripture I just gave you, Father of heaven and earth, uh, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is your, what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and the one who knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What I want to point out is that word joy. We think Jesus was so stoic, like, praise you, Father, in heaven and earth, or whatever. Do you know what this word means? This, I, this is the original Greek word. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce it. It means properly getting so glad one jumps in celebration to exalt boast because of experientially joyful. It literally means to leap, to jump. Jesus was so excited and joyful that he was jumping up and down. Praise you, Father. Right? Like he, this made him drunk in the Holy Ghost. What made him drunk in the Holy Ghost? That, this is, this is almost odd, that you hid these things from the wise and learned, but you revealed them to little children. That's what made Jesus so happy. It's, it, why did that make Jesus so happy? <laughs> right? Why did that make Jesus so happy? If we want to make Jesus happy, this is how we do it. Now, what's he talking about here? You reveal these things to little children. He's talking about the things of the kingdom. He's talking about salvation. Because look, the verse before, he says, don't rejoice that the Spirit submits you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's the humble, the little children the Father was pleased to reveal that to, the salvation, right, the kingdom. And, and, and to show you, that's why I have it down there. He, so the Son chooses to reveal... Who does the son choose to reveal the father to? Little children. But it's not, that's not the only thing that makes him happy. What else makes him happy is that God refused to show the wise and learned. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble, to the little children. For, and and, and the, the little children are his disciples. They're the ones he decided to reveal that to if we want to be disciples of the Lord, we have to learn to be like children. And that's my next slide. Actually, no, it's not. <laughs> next slide is this. I 
forgot I changed this this morning. What does pride look like? Because we want to give contrast. We're talking about humility. I was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does pride look like? It looks like the devil. <laughs> okay? Remember, the, the, Jesus rejoiced. I saw Satan be cast down like lightning. What was Jesus referencing? The Old Testament. Ezekiel 28. This is, this is talking about Satan and why he got cast out of heaven. I'm just going to start in verse 14. There's more, but you were anointed as the guardian cherub for you. So I ordained you. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways for the day you were created uh, from the day. And, uh, sorry, until wickedness was found in you through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you guardian cherub. And among the fire, from among the fire ones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you, uh, cor- you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. And the next verse, Isaiah 14, 11 to 15. This is talking about the devil again. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. All along the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you've fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, right? That's what Jesus was alluding to. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, this is the pride, I will ascend to the heavens, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, I'll sit enthroned on the mountain of the uh, assembly, on the outmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Next slide. So Jesus, so what happened here? What What made the devil fall? He was an angel. Some people think he was one of the archangels, right? Like Gabriel. Satan fell because he allowed pride to enter his heart, Period. It was clear when I gave you the scriptures, right? Pride entered your heart. That's what happened. Pride caused the devil to fall. And this is the key. He ca- and it has caused the fall of almost everyone since. So what is pride? Pride is to think that you don't need God. Pride is to think that you could ever be righteous or acceptable in your own merit. Self-righteousness is what caused Satan to fall from grace. Therefore, God will only give his grace to the humble. God will only give his grace to the humble. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's why it's important to understand both. What's pride? What's humility? Right? Because if if we don't understand, and and it's good to give conscience, if we don't understand what pride is, then how are we going to know whether we fall into it or not? Luke 18, this is perfect. I love the, if you didn't notice this, you look at the parables, often they're intentionally placed in certain places to make a point. And, and God often uses contrasts in the Bible to, to, to illustrate certain truths. And I'll explain that more in a minute. Luke 18, now this is right after the parable of the persistent widow who prayed night and day. You remember, I might, some of you might remember, I talked about that before. Praying night and day nonstop, and Jesus then says, am I going to find faith on the earth? Like the persistent widow who kept going and going and going until she got the answer. 
Oops. Right after, he gives this parable. Okay, Luke 18, 9 to 17. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Notice he's talking about prayer. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, listen to this prayer. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And remember, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, right after this, he gives, uh, there's, a, there's a teaching about children. I'm going to get to that later. It, but it, um, I put it up there to show you. It's not a coincidence that's right after this parable, okay? So just keep that in mind. But I want to point out a couple things before I go there. So God resists the proud. Maybe this will help you remember this, this story. I, I, how many of you know Mike Bickle from International House of Prayer? Yeah. A long time ago, he had this series on fasting. And, of course, he's like, because <laughs> of his, his, his position and, and job and calling, that he's really into fasting and prayer. And, and I remember him telling this story, and I might get some of the details wrong. This is quite a while ago. How he, he called fasting shark-infested waters. And he's because of pride. When he was a young man, he said, the Lord called me to fasting and prayer. And then I started judging people. I started, look at these lazy people not fasting like I am. Now, right, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But so he started looking at other people and saying, feeling kind of, hey, look at these lazy people. They're not fasting like I'm fasting. The irony of that, so the, the calling he was given was from Luke 18, prayer night and day like the widow I just talked about. But he stopped there. Right after is this parable about this Pharisee who became prideful about prayer and fasting. And God said, because of your pride, I'm gonna t- it's only because of my grace that you're fasting so much. To teach you this lesson, I'm taking off my grace. And I think he took it off for three years. Mike said it was three years of rock pile fasting. <laughs> you get the terminology. No grace. Drudgery. Because God said, this is what you got to watch out for. That you don't give in to this pride because it's only by my grace you're able to fast and pray so much. And look, this Pharisee, you don't want to become like this Pharisee where you're like, hey, look at me. I'm so much better than this person over here. Because Jesus said it's actually the other guy who went home justified and not you. Because you're so self-righteous. So this is the, look at, this is the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I have a major manifestation of self-righteousness is focusing on what's wrong with others while being blind to your own faults. That's what this is illustrating, isn't it? A self-righteous are inclined to see more what's wrong with other people, other churches, whatever, and not, and, and not what's right with them. Now, I have here criticism, and this is something, I mean, I'm convicted by this too. Critic- what's criticism if you think about it? Now, this gives an appearance of wisdom when we criticize others, but it's pride. It's really pride, usually, cloaked. It's pride in its most base form. One of its most base forms. I'll just stick with the notes. When we criticize others, we're in effect declaring ourselves to be better than them. 
right? I'm better than this person because when you're criticizing, that's what you're implying. Look at this tax collector over here who's not fasting and praying like I am, right? It's just a manifestation of pride. Now this next, look at what he says. I fast twice a week (laughs) and I give a tenth of all I get. Hey, God, look how awesome I am, right? (laughs) God's not impressed at all. Right Now, I said this before, and I want to say it again. These are good things. Fasting, tithing, we know that. But we got to watch out if we, if we become self-righteous because we're doing these things. Look, Satan knows that God will not inhabit any work that's inflated with pride and that God himself will even resist such a work. And I said this before, God knows this. The devil, rather, knows this more than most Christians, that God resists the proud. So if he can get us prideful even about good things, if he can make us proud... Like how much we read our Bibles, how much we pray, how much we fast, how much we give, how much we volunteer. The devil knows that God's going to, that'll be actually counterproductive because God is going to resist that. We become prideful in this, if we do, that's a strategy of the enemy because he knows God's not going to show up if we become prideful about these things. So the devil's strategy is to try to get us prideful so that God's going to resist us and we're not going to get his grace. Look at how much I fast and pray. No way. (laughs) That is not good. So. Now I'll go back to Luke 18. Now I'm going to highlight the second part. Right? I talked about the prideful Pharisee. And like I said, it's not a coincidence Jesus talks about this right after. He's talking about pride and humility. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never. And I'm emphasizing that for a point. Will never enter it. I don't understand. Okay. I don't understand how we we skim over these kinds of verses. We talk about being born again like there's no tomorrow. And there's one portion of scripture that talks about that. That's fine. Why don't we talk about becoming like little children? Because Jesus is saying that same thing here. Unless you become like a little child, you're never going to enter the kingdom. Luke 10, 21. Going back to that scripture that I showed you. And I already talked about this. Jesus was full of joy. Remember the language. Because God uh, kept these things hidden from the wise and learned revealed them to little children. Little children, right? What's up with little children? These are the two things we got to take from this. And remember, he's talking about salvation, revealing the Father to little children, his disciples. That he hid it from the wise and learned, but that he he, uh, revealed it to his children. If we want to be disciples and make Jesus really happy to the point where he's jumping up and down in the Holy Ghost, then we need to find out what it means to be like children, don't we? And that's my next point. What does humility look like? Little children. <laughs> it seems silly, but it's true. And, and the reason is Jesus mentions this not just once, he, multiple times in different gospels that we have to become like children. And I'm going to just show you that quickly. So look at Matthew 18, 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus, now, he called little children and, and placed the children among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever takes the lowly, in another translation says humble, talking about humility, position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such a child in my name welcomes me. So something to consider. Jesus is serious, even though it seems foolish potentially. Jesus is not. He's not joking. He's serious about becoming like children. He's serious about it. I'm just going to bam, 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 show you four points. The kingdom of God belongs to children, Luke 18, 16. The kingdom belongs to them. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it, Luke 18, 16. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 8, 3. Therefore, whoever takes the humble position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does humility look like? That's the million-dollar question, right? Like little children. Now, I don't think, actually, next slide. I don't think it's a coincidence. This is why I said we focus so much on being born again. What about becoming like little children? Because the connection between becoming like little children and entering the kingdom is in your face. This is Jesus saying this, right? And remember, why is this? God gives grace to the humble. We're talking about salvation now. Ephesians 2, 8. We know this. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace. God gives grace to the humble. Who are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven? Who are the ones who are saved? It's the humble because they attract God's grace. We, it's a positioning of the heart. Notice it's by grace through faith. What does that mean? Because everyone wants to focus on the grace part, and that's awesome. We are saved by grace. It's a gift. We can't earn it. But there's actually a posture of heart we need to have in order to receive it. And that's the faith part. Be, receive, remember, you, unless you receive the kingdom like little children, you're not going to get it. You'll never enter it. So you got to receive it. And that's what faith is. What's faith? I think there's two synonyms of faith. This is, I think, potentially true. <laughs> Trust is one of them, and expectancy is the other. Trusting God like a little child is what faith is. Galatians 3 talks about, have you received so much in vain? Because they're trying to get into heaven by works. You receive the Holy Spirit by believing what you heard, not by doing works, you foolish Galatians. Believing what you heard. Believing like a little child. Unless we become like little children, receive with, with trust like a little child. Like, look at, if you think about children, what is it that makes them unique? Why is Jesus so enthusiastic about becoming like a child? Because they trust unquestionably. They just believe their father. Not only do they trust unquestionably, they don't, they don't question. Actually, that's part of trust, isn't it? They don't question they just believe God said it. That's it. You got to receive it like a little child. So many are called, but few are chosen. The, the people Jesus chose out as disciples were little children. Right? And we talked about that in Luke. They re he revealed it to little children. Remember that? You might remember. You might, Matthew twenty two fourteen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen ones? It's the humble. They're the ones who receive God's grace. Because the prideful are about self-righteousness and they reject God's grace when he offers it. It's like in Matthew 13 when he talks about the different kinds of soils. And he's talking about the heart. There's a certain kind of soil that receives 
the word of God, and there's a multiplication of 30, 60, 100 times what's sown. But there's other types of seed that reject or don't allow it to grow. And so there's actually, what I'm trying to say is there's a posture of heart. Remember, humility is a choice. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so I'm not, I'm not, uh, I want to say this. I'm not an Arminian. I'm not a Calvinist. Because I think you can, you can find scriptures that there's the radical middle. The, 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 both are true. Figure that one out. I just, I don't get it, but it's true. <laughs> we have a part to play in salvation. What's our part? Receiving it like a child, humility. Because, you know, it's not like, remember I said the, the, the quote up front? It's not about being right or wrong. Jesus doesn't treat us in terms of right or wrong. He treats us in terms of pride and humility. So it's not like, hey, when I, I've been saved since I was 18 and I've been right for 18 years. How silly is that? That's not what it's about. It's about relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And he's the right spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. I'm going to end there. Because there's other scriptures I was going to go over, but for the sake of time, I'm going to end there. And let us, let us consider, and maybe if I have time another time, I'll, I'll go over these other scriptures. But if you want them, I'm going to give them to you now. Because we're talking about humility. And we, the, the key scripture I was giving you was, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That was, if you look at James, I'm just going to give you these scriptures. And if you want, you can look at them your own, and maybe sometime I'll talk about them. We can get a lot of revelation from, about humility if we look at the surrounding context of where these scriptures occur. <laughs> right? I mean, so James 4, verses 3 to 8. It's verse 6 where he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I was going to say, what's humility? Submitting to God. Resisting the devil. And he'll flee from you. Drawing near to God and he'll draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. Those are three things you do to humble yourself. Submitting to God. Resisting the devil. Now, one thing I do want to point out. Notice this. God resists the proud. Who do we resist? We resist the devil because he tries to make us prideful. That's why we have to resist the devil. Because that's, that's a lot of his strategies to get us prideful. So that's why part of humility is actively resisting the devil when he comes to try to get us prideful. And then relationship with the Lord. Drawing near to God is the key. Notice in verse 5, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously for us so we don't give in to the spirit of the world. The other verse is 1 Peter 5 to 11. And, and another time, maybe I'll go over this. But talking about community and what, what else it looks like to be humble. Okay? So, I want to pray for us. Because like I said, as a congregation, if we're going to get anywhere, if we're going to get anywhere, <laughs> we want to attract the Lord. I mean, if you look at Catch the Fire, that's what we're all about. That's our history is God coming, encountering people like little children, right? It's not a coincidence. And remember I, when I talked to, you might not remember if you weren't here, but I talked about our prophetic history. And God told the prophets, Bob Jones, in 1984, and 10 years from now, I'm going to pour out the wine of the Spirit to what? Produce humility in my children. 
What did, the, what did the revival look like? It looked like foolishness in some ways, but it looked like playing like little children, didn't it? It looked like people having fun in the presence of the Lord, like little children. And it was the humble who received it. And it was the prideful who said, no way, this can't be God. Right? Like little children. You got to receive it like little children. What I want to say is this. We cannot give in to pride because of what God did in the past. We have to remain like little children so that God will come again. Because we're, like, we're, we're going to go nowhere unless the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what's going to attract people. It's not going to be good preaching. It's not going to whatever. It's going to be the Holy Spirit coming and encountering people. And he's going to attract people to come. And, but what, what do we do? We got to position our hearts to be humble so that he'll come and he'll give us grace and he won't resist us as a congregation. So I just want to pray for us in this regard. And, I, and, 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 and I'm hoping that some of these things that I talked about today that, that we would meditate on and consider. Because like I said, this isn't, this, this, this is, I haven't even scratched the surface of what humility it is. But I'm just trying to throw some things out there that talk about this for us to consider what it looks like to be a community that walks in humility. So that we can do this according to the, 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 what the Lord wants and what pleases him. So I just want to pray over us as a congregation. Lord, I thank you. That you give grace to the humble Father. And I thank you, Lord, that you've taught us so many lessons what it looks like to be childlike because of how you move and and how you like to play with your children because you're a good Father. We thank you for the revelation that the Holy Spirit is joyful and he loves to play. And and that's why Jesus jumped with joy in the Holy Spirit that you revealed these things to little children. And we ask you for the grace, Lord, to humble ourselves and to show us what it means to be like children. And not to get so caught up with right and wrong and and pride in self-righteousness, that we miss it by not being like little children and knowing what it looks like to play in your presence. Lord, enable us as a people to walk these scriptures out in the context of community so that we can attract the grace of heaven and that your Holy Spirit would dwell upon us and among us continually. Let us be a church and a congregation that you look upon. As you say in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where's the house you'll build for me? Where's the resting, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made these things, you say? These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Just like that, Lord, let us be that resting place that we would be humble and contrite so that you would come and dwell amongst your people. I thank you, Lord, for your presence, and I thank you for your example as you were when you walked on earth, what humility looks like. Please enable us to be predestined to your image in conformity of Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Well,